The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. When I was growing up, I thought that the point of life was pleasure. That the point of my life was to pursue pleasure. So the pleasure of getting the game-winning hit, you know, shooting the game-winning shot, the pleasure that comes from having a close friend, the pleasure that comes from making money or having comforts, the pleasure that comes from a romantic relationship, the pleasure that comes from having other people think highly of you. My life centered on the pleasures that the world had to offer. But then as I grew, I quickly came to learn that every pleasure is fleeting. Every pleasure is passing. It is hevel, if you were with us in our series in Ecclesiastes. It is here today and it is gone tomorrow. Every nice tasting dessert, every sports game, every championship won, every comfort that we pursue, they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. They do not last And so I wouldn't be surprised if the same is for you. If much of your life today or in the past is is, is kind of spent pursuing pleasure. Maybe pleasure comes through a job title. Maybe it comes through creaturely comforts, a vacation, a friendship, a house, drugs, alcohol, sex, your parents' approval, your kids' approval. Whatever it is, the pleasures of the world are fleeting. So if we're not to pursue pleasures, what are we to pursue? In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller opens one of his chapters with a quote from the famous Russian fiction writer, Leo Tolstoy, Tolstoy, in his book, A Confession. The quote will be on on the screen. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I had found by experience. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? So our question is, why live? Is there any meaning? Is there any purpose? And I don't really know if there's any higher question that any person on the face of the earth can ask. So we are in the book of Acts, and I think our passage this morning is going to help us answer this question. The book of Acts, Trevor helpfully pointed out last week that the first 20 chapters is like an Indiana Jones movie. Churches are being planted. Crazy things are happening. It's a pretty awesome story to read. But then the last five chapters, it's like a a slow episode or season of law and order. There's just this back and forth. Paul, who's our primary character, is just being passed back and forth between these kind of judicial councils, these different leaders, and nothing is really happening. Paul is kept in prison, and he keeps getting passed from leader to leader because of his belief in Jesus. So let's dive into our passage 
this morning. Acts 25, verse 1, we're going to see in these first 12 verses Paul's appeal. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So three days after Festus had arrived, Festus is the new governor. If you go back just one or or two verses, you're going to see in chapter 24, two years have passed. Festus now takes over for Felix as the governor of Judea. And Paul is kept in prison for these entire two years. So Festus, as the new governor, does what a new governor would do. He lands in his home area. Caesarea is going to be where he's going to be based. He spends a few days there, kind of getting himself oriented. Then he takes a trip 75 miles uh, southeast to Jerusalem to meet other leaders of the province. He wants to become known. He wants to know who the people he should be interacting with are. Verse 2, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So Paul, the, the Jews lay out this case against Paul. They want to draw Paul to Jerusalem. Why do they want to do it? Because they want to kill him. They want to take him out. They don't like what Paul is about. They don't like what Paul has done. So they're going to try to play on the inexperience of the new guy. This new guy, Festus, maybe he doesn't really know anything. Let's just go lay out our case. Let's try to get him to draw Paul to Jerusalem, and then we'll ambush Paul on the way. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men, so said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Festus essentially just tells the Jews, no, I'm not going to bring him down. I'm actually only going to be here a few days. So if you really care about trying Paul, decide amongst yourselves a few men who have authority and just send them back with me. We'll go back to Caesarea. We can put a little council together. We'll put a little case together. We'll have a tribunal and you can try him there. I'm not going to bring him down to Jerusalem just for your sake. Verse 6. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So uh, Festus stays around Jerusalem for a few days, goes back to Caesarea and he, some of the leading Jews go with him and they set up a tribunal, kind of set up a court for Paul to be tried. They draw Paul into the tribunal. And then verse 7, Luke makes this just amazing claim. Luke is the author of, of this book. He says they bring many charges and they bring serious charges against Paul, but they could not prove them. They can't prove the charges that they brought. Essentially, the Jews are just angry and hostile towards Paul, towards the gospel, towards Jesus. So they hurl charges. They hurl very serious charges. And then essentially what is taking place, verse 24, down below, we'll get to in a minute, Festus summarizes that they essentially just shout all of these charges against him. They're just shouting and shouting. They're yelling and yelling. 
And essentially they think if they shout and talk long enough with enough intensity that they're going to become believable. Fess is going to say, oh yeah, these guys are believable. They're very passionate for what they're saying. They're just going to wear Festus down so that they can kill Paul. But they don't have any proof. What does this sound like? Does this sound familiar to you? We were talking in our teaching team that we do with the, a couple of the pastors and our, our residents this week that this just sounds like a Twitter mob. I don't know if you've ever, you know, taken to Twitter or probably taken to, you know, corporate media, social media in any way. If you can just be loud enough, bold enough, and just keep proclaiming it for long enough, you eventually become believed. It doesn't matter if you have any facts, it doesn't matter if you have any proof, you just keep saying it stronger and stronger and stronger. You yell and you yell and you yell and you eventually are believed. And that's essentially what the Jews are trying to do here to Paul. They don't have any proof, they don't have anything they can actually do, so we're just going to yell and we're just going to scream and we're just going to bring bold accusations against Paul. And then Paul just simply refutes them, very simply, very basically. Verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews. So he's saying here, he hasn't broke any of the Jewish law. He's operating in a Jewish area. Paul is Jew by birth. He says, I haven't broken any of the Jewish law. I'm okay there. Nor against the temple. So he's saying here, I haven't broken the law of the temple. The whole reason Paul is in prison, if you go back to chapter 21, verse 29, The Jews think that Paul brought a Gentile into the kind of innermost parts of the temple, only where Jews should have been. But Paul didn't do it. They're just saying he did it. They don't have any witnesses. It's been years and years, and they haven't found anybody who can actually prove it. And so Paul just says, I haven't violated the law of the temple. Going on, verse 8, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Paul isn't causing a riot Paul is keeping the peace. He's not doing anything against Caesar. Caesar is the leader of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is the most powerful people essentially in the world. And he's not causing any offense to them. He's not breaking any of the law that they have. So Festus should have at this point just let him go. Paul hasn't broken anything. They don't have any proof of the charges. But clearly... Both human and divine authorities had other plans. Verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Essentially, do you want to go to Jerusalem, Paul? You want to, you want to go see if you want to be tried down there? Really, uh, Festus is just trying to do the Jews a favor and get Paul back to Jerusalem and kind of have him tested there. Festus is maybe hoping he'll learn a little bit more about the case if they go back down to Jerusalem. Verse 10, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. He's a Roman citizen, so he should be tried in the Roman Empire before Caesar's tribunal. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul just flatly refuses. He maintains his innocence. He knows justice goes to die for him in Jerusalem. He's not going to get a fair trial. And so what does he do? 
he just appeals to Caesar. Because he's a Roman citizen, he can get to go to Rome and he can get to have his trial before Caesar. Verse 12, then Festus, when he had conferred conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Festus is essentially in a tight spot. He should have let Paul go just a couple verses earlier, but he really can't let Paul go free because of Jewish hostility, because of his fear over what the Jews might do. But now he can't convict and sentence Paul because there's no legitimate charges. And also Paul, a Roman citizen, has said, I appeal to Caesar. So now everything, Festus has no authority to do anything. He has to send Paul on. So we've seen Paul's appeal. Verses 13 through 22, we're going to see Paul's argument. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now this is not exactly a high character affair. Harold Agrippa II, this is the great grandson of Herod the Great, the man who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. He's the son of Herod Agrippa I who killed James, the leader of really the church in in Jerusalem, and arrested Peter. Bernice was Herod Agrippa's uh, younger sister, previously married to their uncle, and there's a perceived incestuous relationship between the two. So it's not a high-class affair going on here. Verse 14, And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. So it's natural for Paul's situation to come up, for natural for Festus to talk to Agrippa. Agrippa has a lot of knowledge into Judaism. He's actually the one who gets to appoint the Jewish high priest He also has a lot of knowledge into imperial politics. He's the king of the area. So it's kind of natural for Agrippa to go, or for Festus to go and ask Agrippa, what do you think? I don't know exactly what to do here. Help me out. Verse 16, Festus answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. So kind of a logical understanding. The Romans won't just accuse somebody, won't prosecute somebody without there being accusers, without there being witnesses to it, and they have to come face to face. Verse 18, we're going to start to get really a change in this passage. When the accusers stood up, They brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. And so again, the accusers have brought nothing of value. Verse 7, just up above, they brought charges and they couldn't prove them. Here, they're bringing charges and they're almost just mundane. Festus thought, I thought they were going to bring some weighty charges. These guys have vitriol towards Paul. They are so angry. I thought they were going to bring something of weight, something of of power, something that was just going to condemn him. And Fess is like, they just brought mundane charges. Like, it, it was nothing. It seemed pointless. So they find no evil charge. Again, it seems like Paul should have been released. They don't have, they can't prove the charges. They have nothing evil on him, but it hasn't happened. He's just been in prison for years and years at this point. 
And again, it seems like there's something bigger going on. Trevor has pointed out over the last few weeks that the gospel and Christianity are being pushed further and further into the Roman Empire. Paul is enduring for the sake of the spread of the gospel. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. The hostility of the Jews, the ambivalence of the Romans will help bring about the Christianization of the Roman Empire. We're only a couple hundred years away from the entire Roman Empire being Christianized, which is absolutely amazing thinking about where we are in this passage. So the big question we asked at the beginning, is there any meaning or purpose in life? The center of the Bible, the linchpin of the gospel, shows the point of life. And we're going to get to it right here in verse 19 and 20. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him. The Jews had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. The center point of the gospel is right here. It is the resurrection. These two years of imprisonment have taken place because Paul asserts that Jesus is alive while the Jews assert that Jesus is dead. And I love verse 20. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem. Festus essentially says, I don't get it. I don't know what they're talking about. One guy's talking about Jesus was resurrected. The other guys are saying Jesus was dead. I don't really get it. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I was thinking about for us in this room, kind of me probably isolated up here compared to the rest of you. I really don't get college football. And it's like a lot of you in here, you're wearing your colors this morning. You don't get it either. Yeah, Trevor doesn't get college football. That's, that's definitely not true. You know, Tyler Hall asked me, did you watch any college football yesterday? I thought about it for a second. I was like, no, I didn't watch any college football. I had no desire to watch any college football. I don't really get it. It's like four hours long to watch like 15 minutes of actual play. I looked up this stat this morning. There's usually 50 minute, 50 to 60 minutes of commercials during a normal football game. And it's like, I don't want to watch that. That doesn't sound fun to me at all. What do I want to do? I want to watch real football. I want to watch the beautiful game. I want to watch soccer. That's what I want to spend my time doing. It's an hour and 50 minutes. There's like six minutes of commercial. The ball is in play for 60 minutes. And the game lasts, you know, 90 minutes. It's very clear start, very clear stop. It's not, am I going to be here for four hours? Am I going to be here for four and a half hours? I don't know. I'm going to be here for an hour and 50 minutes. That's all. It's very nice. It's very beautiful. It's perfect. And that's what I want to watch. But again, I'm isolated up here. Jacob uh, Farrell was telling me, Bridget was asking yesterday, why can't we just watch soccer instead of football? It's like, I'm with her. That's where, that's where I'm at. That's what I want to do. But then there are some of you out here who are like, I don't get the conversation at all. I don't like sports. Like, you guys that love college football, Trevor's always up here talking about college football and Gamecocks and saying all these things. I don't get it. Aaron, you're talking about soccer? I don't get it. I don't, I don't get that. I don't get football. I don't get football. I don't get either of the footballs. I don't understand. I don't want to watch it. I don't want to do that. I just want to hang out with people. I want to enjoy people's fellowship. I want to enjoy being in good relationship with everyone. I don't want to be angry at something. I just want to have just an enjoyable life. And so I don't like football. I don't like either of the footballs. And that's kind of what I'm thinking, you know, Festus is doing here. It's like, I don't, get, I don't get what Jesus rising from the dead. I don't really get that. 
I don't get why the Jews care if Jesus is dead or not. I don't, I don't even understand. I don't really get either side of the ball. Why don't you just guys, just go to Jerusalem. Just go discuss it amongst yourselves. You guys can figure it out there. Verse 21. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. It's amazing reading these um, last few chapters, how the, the, the leaders, when they're talking to other leaders, they start making things up. They kind of adjust the story just a little bit to make themselves sound just a little bit better. And Festus is like, I just ordered him to be kept until he could go to Caesar. And it's like, he didn't have anything else he could do. He had to keep him until he went to Caesar. Verse 22, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So Agrippa wants to hear what's going on. He wants to hear from Paul directly. Third section of this passage, verses 23 through 27, we're going to see, really we've seen it in each of the sections, but we're going to see Paul's innocence. Verse 23, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Amazing, amazing language. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. In one day, this huge grand event that literally has no abilities to do anything. They have no authority to make any decision. They just want to have some big grand event. They're going to bring Paul in. They're going to kind of parade him around. They're going to look at, they're going to have all the prominent men look at them and be shown how great they are. Trevor mentioned last week just the low-grade corruption. We're going to see that in these next few verses. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. So again, we see in verse 24, just the hostility, the anger, Festus says, the whole Jewish people, every Jewish person you could ever imagine in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, they're so angry at Paul. They are just shouting and shouting and shouting. They are just a Twitter mob, just proclaiming and proclaiming and proclaiming that we should kill him. Verse 25, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. It's like, duh, is, is my response to that. Festus is openly acknowledging that Paul is innocent. Agrippa is going to do the same thing in uh, the next chapter, in Trevor's passage next week, verse 32. Agrippa is going to also acknowledge that Paul is innocent, but they don't release him. They force Paul to essentially appeal to Caesar because Paul does not want to go back to Jerusalem. He knows what might happen. So he appeals to Caesar, and now what they have to do is just trump up some charges, like, hey, let's get a big group together. You guys, just, let's just come up with some things. Let's try to figure out what Paul might have done wrong. So what do we see in this story? I think we see a, a couple things. First, Jewish intensity and Roman indecision continue to push the gospel into the heart of the empire. Jewish intensity and Roman indecision push the gospel 
into the heart of the empire. Paul is bound for Rome. We've called this kind of last section of Acts, Acts 21 to, to 28, being bound for Rome. Paul is to push to Rome, and it seems like God is in charge, ultimately, that the gospel needs to get to Rome. So why is Paul enduring the hostility that he is? What is the purpose of his life? These two years of imprisonment and hostility have taken place because Paul holds to the central point of the gospel. He asserts that Jesus is alive while the Jews assert that he is dead. The heart of our faith is the assertion of verse 19. Is Jesus alive or is he dead? Are we going to side with Paul or are we going to side with Jews? So number two, we see that the meaning of life is found in the resurrection. The resurrection is the center of the gospel in Christianity. Paul was confronted with the resurrected Jesus. Felix, Festus, Agrippa, all these leaders we've been seeing over the last few chapters, they are confronted with it and they dismiss it. The Jews are confronted with the resurrection of Jesus and they just get angry. The resurrection is the linchpin of human history. It is the point of contention. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Trevor made clear last week that the resurrection relativizes everything. Jesus is worthy to be followed and to be listened to if he is resurrected. But if he didn't, then there's no need to listen to him. There's no need to follow him. There's no need to be here this morning. Everything hinges on the resurrection. So how do we know it is true? Let's read verse 19 and 20 again. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. Festus has no idea how to investigate the question, is Jesus alive? But thankfully, we have the ability together to investigate that question. We're going to think about the resurrection at at kind of two levels. We're going to think about the resurrection at an intellectual level and at a heart level. So if we're thinking about the resurrection at an intellectual level, if we were like Festus and we were kind of wanting to investigate, we weren't quite sure how to, that's what I hope to lay out in the next couple of minutes. The proof is strong for the resurrection at an intellectual level. First, we have Jesus' death and burial. The death and burial are vital because if we don't have a dead Jesus, we can't have a resurrected Jesus. This is the fact that's most agreed upon by both Christians and non-Christians. Almost all historians are going to agree Jesus was crucified, he did die, and he was buried. No one was going to come up with the idea of a crucified Messiah. The fact that these people would call Jesus the Messiah and would say he's crucified is totally dumbfounding. It is completely offensive. So if we have Jesus' death and burial, what happened after that? Well, the second piece of evidence is the empty tomb and eyewitnesses. 
People will argue that the empty tomb and the gospel accounts are fabrications. They were made up. They were just written, you know, hundreds of years later just to prove some story. But the first account of Jesus' resurrection of the empty tomb comes not from the gospels, not from even, you know, some extra biblical source. It comes actually from Paul, this very man who is on trial for the resurrection of Jesus. He writes only 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death. It'll be on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, we have the death and burial, that he was raised, the resurrection, on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. But it's not just Paul who knows this. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, so the 12 closest disciples, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Paul puts in this little caveat at the end. He appeared to 500 people, and most of those 500 people are still alive. So you know what you can do? If you don't believe me, if you don't believe my letter, just go talk to someone, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen of these 500 people who say that Jesus was resurrected. Moreover, the the accounts were too problematic to be made up. The very first eyewitnesses to the resurrection, according to the Gospels, were women. And the testimony of women were not admissible as evidence in a court in the first century. So to use women as the, as the ones, the crux of the argument, to try to convince a bunch of other people would not have been done. We also have that the very best guards were protecting the tomb, and yet the tomb goes empty. Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, the Jewish leaders see the empty tomb They need to figure out what happened. And so they tell the other people, hey, just make up the story that the Christian or that the the believers, the followers of Jesus, that they just stole his body. And if they're going to make up the story that Jesus stole the body, it means that the the, the tomb is empty and that Jesus is not there and they can't find Jesus. It implies that the Jewish leaders actually thought that the tomb was really empty. If the tomb is not empty, just produce the body. If there is no resurrection, then just go talk to the 500 witnesses. And their eyewitness testimony is not going to line up. I love that the beginning of Acts, this book we've been studying, Luke opens up in chapter 1, verse 3, that there are many proofs, is the language he uses, to the resurrection of Christ. Third kind of way to to support the resurrection. We have Jesus' death and burial, the empty tomb, and and eyewitnesses. Third is the apostles' belief. So these early, you know, closest followers of Jesus, they saw him, but not just for one time. They saw him for weeks and weeks after his resurrection. And they didn't just claim to have some vision, some dream. They claimed to touch him. They claimed to eat with him. It's nearly universally agreed upon again that all, by all historians that the apostles at least thought they saw the resurrected Jesus. 
Now, these men who saw the resurrected Jesus, there is really good historical evidence that James, John, and Peter, the closest three, were executed for their following of Jesus. There's good evidence, again, that 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith. People do not die for something that they know for sure is false and made up. Think about if you made up a story and I said, because of the story you made up, you were going to be killed you're gonna, or you're going to be put in prison for the rest of your life. But you knew it was made up. Would you stick to the story? Would you keep to the story if your life was on the line? What would be the motivation if the story was made up? People do not die for something that they know is false. Pascal, this great mathematician and theologian, said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I believe the witnesses that have their lives on the line. That's what I'm going to put my kind of hope and faith in. I'm going to trust these guys who are following Christ and giving their lives for it. The fourth piece of evidence is the explosion of the church. The resurrection changed everything. Christianity exploded in the very city where the central character who is made out to be the Messiah was crucified only weeks prior. And that is a totally offensive thing to say or do or to follow. People would have laughed at the disciples if they were making it up. Crucifixion is literally the worst thing. And instead of it kind of just falling by the wayside... Jesus' followers just kind of going away. 3,000 people immediately start following this resurrected Lord. There's numerous other pieces of evidence. If you have questions on the resurrection of Jesus, I'd be happy to talk to you today. I'll be out uh, outside at, after our service. I'd be happy to get coffee. I'd be happy to suggest a number of books and articles. And I can sympathize if you say, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe that someone would be resurrected. But I would say to you that the burden of proof is not just on me. It's not just on the Christian, but it's also on the non-Christian. If you are not a believer in here, I would say that the burden of proof for Jesus' resurrection is on you. You need to prove that Jesus is still dead or that all of this stuff is just made up. You can't simply say, Paul is crazy. You know, Matthew, he's crazy. Luke, that guy is crazy. That's an ad hominem fallacy. That's just attacking the person. It's not attacking the argument. If you disbelieve the resurrection, you have the difficulty of explaining the evidence and how the church got started. So that's the resurrection at an intellectual level. But we can't leave it at an intellectual level. We need to think about the resurrection at a heart level. That is ultimately what matters. And my question to you is, don't you want this to be true? Don't you want the resurrection to be true? Most of you out there probably care for justice. Most of you out there care that there are right and wrong. Most of you care that people would not go hungry, that childhood cancer would be destroyed. But if we believe this world is just an accident and that it'll just burn up sometime in, in the future, 
that we're just gonna live, we're gonna die, and that's it. What hope do you have? What are your motivations for living? Why should we serve or help one another? Why should we care about anything at all? So thinking about the resurrection at a heart level, first, the resurrection provides hope. Romans chapter 8, verse 8, 18, talks about how the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. Restoration is coming. Glory is coming. Everything horrible that happens to us and around us will be undone and it will be repaired. Sad things will be made untrue. And somehow the sufferings that you experience, that I experience, that the world experiences will make the eventual glory and joy that is to come, it will make it that much greater. So the resurrection provides hope. Number two, the resurrection provides purpose. The resurrection is our purpose. It gives meaning to life. We flee sin, we pursue righteousness, we love others, we lay our lives down for the sake of others, all because of the resurrection, because Jesus is worthy. And finally, the resurrection provides redemption. The resurrection provides redemption. This is the beauty of the gospel. Christ saves sinners. He redeems sinners like you and me through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We can have redemption. We can be brought back into right relationship with the one God who is our creator. I open with that quote from from Tolstoy. Just one of the questions he asked in there. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there any meaning in life? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17 through 20. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul is essentially going to make the same argument as Tolstoy. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who are dead, who have believed in Jesus, they've perished. They're never coming again. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ only changes how we live here and now, we should be pitied. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We are not stuck in our sins. We will not perish. We do not have hope for this life only. We don't simply live a meaningless life. We have redemption. We have an eternal relationship with our creator if we believe that Jesus is resurrected. Romans chapter 10 makes clear we can call on the name of the Lord Jesus. We can believe that he was resurrected from the dead and we will be saved. All we have to do is say, yes, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe he is Lord. I believe he is Savior. If you have any questions, any thoughts, any confusion on anything that I've just talked about, I would love to talk with you 
And I know the person who brought you would love to talk with you, your community group leader, your fellow community group members. I pray that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus would change your life. It gives meaning, it gives purpose. It's not just meant to be believed intellectually, it is meant to change our hearts. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you have given us this passage in Acts 25 that we get to to watch Paul, this man who attests in 1 Corinthians 15 to the thing that matters the most is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We get to watch him be put on trial and we get to watch him endure We get to watch him have hope in the resurrected Lord Jesus. And we get to see others. We get to see the highest leaders of the day just be dumbfounded. At this man named Jesus. Who we claim to be raised from the dead. Lord, I pray that you would help convict us this morning, convict us of our sin and convict us of our waywardness, convict us of our lack of faith. And Lord, help us, help us to grow, help us to to put our faith in you, Lord Jesus. We pray that the spirit would work and move and shape our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to believe truly that Jesus is resurrected, that Jesus is living, that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. He's holding all things together. Jesus, we thank you that you save us from our sins, that death has been defeated, that sin has been defeated, and we long for the day where we will get to experience perfect glory, Jesus, when you return. And we pray with John, the end of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We love you. Amen. We're going to take just a minute or two to to reflect and to think and to pray. I pray you would reflect on what the Lord Jesus is, is teaching you this morning.